3: From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. As the coronavirus mutates quickly, medical experts are calling for stricter adherence to masking and social distancing rules and faster vaccinations. California announced plans last week to move to an age-based system to speed up vaccinations, which has drawn backlash from people who are immunocompromised and some essential workers frustrated over delays. Delays made worse this past weekend when anti-vaccine protesters managed to temporarily shut down a major L.A. vaccination site. We'll talk about the latest coronavirus news and the power of medical myths with Dr. Seema Yasmin next on Forum. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Vaccine makers are trying to adapt their formulas and doses to a rapidly mutating coronavirus, while state officials scramble to speed up a rocky vaccine rollout to stop the more transmissible variants from taking hold. Over the weekend, a group of maskless anti-vaccine protesters managed to shut down a major vaccine site at Dodger Stadium in L.A. for nearly an hour, angering seniors who'd already been waiting hours to get their shots. Stanford professor, medical doctor, epidemiologist, and journalist Seema Yasmin has been studying how the pandemic has been made worse by disinformation. Her new book is Viral BS, Medical Myths and Why We Fall for Them. She'll also take your questions about the latest coronavirus developments, including California's vaccine rollout and concern over virus variants. Dr. Yasmin, welcome to Forum.
4: Hi, thanks for having me.
3: You know, these virus mutations are showing up everywhere, and there are several to talk about, including the variant that originated here in California. I mean, last we heard about that one, we don't know enough about the variant to say for sure whether it's more contagious or could make vaccines less Effective.
4: Is that still where things stand? That's right. Uh, We're still gathering that kind of data on this newer variant that was first discovered in California. We call it the B1426 variant. And it's a newer version of the coronavirus. It has five mutations, and specifically one of those mutations is in the spike protein of the virus, so that bit that sticks out, and that the virus uses to latch onto our cells and infect us, and that's a bit of a a warning sign because so many of the vaccines, either available or in development, target that spike protein of the coronavirus. And the interesting thing here is that the US has not done a good job and still really isn't sequencing enough Mm. coronavirus samples. So, the doctors at UCSF and also at Cedar Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, who came across this newer California variant, weren't actually looking for it. They were looking for the B117 variant that popped up in the UK late last year. What we do know, even as we are gathering this data, is that one case of this California variant was first discovered in July. Then we didn't really see much. But by December, we would seen like a 24 percent uptick in just how many people were infected with this particular variant. So it shows how quickly things can change and how quickly the virus can evolve.
3: Yes. And what you're saying is we need a better way to track these variants. What should we be doing that we aren't doing enough of?
4: we should be doing what the UK is doing, which is just sampling a lot more virus from anyone who becomes infected. So I think it was in December that we started hearing more news about what was called the quote unquote UK variant. And I was a bit frustrated by that wording, not because I'm British or anything, no bias, but I was thinking, well, of course that variant was found in the UK because the UK is doing about half the planet's share of coronavirus sequencing. So you go looking for variant strains of the virus and guess what, you're going to find them because this is what viruses do. They evolve and they develop mutations that usually make them stronger, fitter and faster. So to me, it felt a little bit cheeky. We were calling it the British or the UK variant. And actually, we have, of course, now seen it in the States. We've seen, I think, in about 15 or so states But really, it's got to be much more widespread than that. And we are just not looking for it here in the US. We're not doing enough of that genetic sequencing of the virus. And I think a lot more of that variant and other variants are just going underreported.
3: Well, and other variants, as you say, because there are so many other variants to contend with from the Brazil and South African variants. Over the weekend, we learned that the South African variant was found in Maryland and, and believed it to be a case of community spread. We also know the Brazil variant was found in Minnesota, what's most concerning about these two particular variants?
4: One thing that's just concerning in general is when you find a variant in the U.S. that was first detected somewhere far away, and you interview that person and you say, have you been to South Africa recently? Have you been to Brazil? And they have no travel history. That's your sign that this variant is already here. It's already spreading. Because we know a bit more about these variants, I think, compared to the California variant I was talking about earlier, we do have a bit more reason to worry. So, for example, with a variant found in South Africa, we call that one the B1351 variant. It's been shown to just be better at sidestepping our immune system's response to infection. So one of the experiments that researchers in South Africa did was they took this newer variant, and they used blood from COVID-19 survivors, with all of its antibodies in it, to try and see would that neutralize this newer variant found in South Africa. And about half the time it didn't do anything. In the cases where COVID-19 survivors' blood did attack the virus, it was blood taken from those COVID-19 survivors who'd been really, really sick and were hospitalized. Maybe they just had a lot more antibodies in their system. So that, of course, starts to ring alarm bells. The good news-ish, I would say, is particularly with that variant, we're still seeing good signs that existing COVID-19 vaccines do seem to work against it. Of course, the big news of last week was with that newer Johnson & Johnson vaccine was not as efficacious against the South Africa variant. And I worry and I wonder that we'll just see more of that and we'll have to get nimble with developing and redeveloping vaccines to deal with the variants.
3: When you say not that efficacious, so for example... The effectiveness dropped from seventy-two percent in the United States to fifty-seven percent in South Africa with regards to the Johnson and Johnson that single dose vaccine. But can you put fifty-seven percent in context for us?
4: In context, actually, fifty-seven percent isn't that bad when it comes to a vaccine's efficacy. So it's good you asked me that question, Mina, because think about the flu shot, which I get every year. I tell everyone to get every year it's somewhere in the region of 40 to 60% efficacious, you know, from clinical trials. And I still tell people, it's still worth you getting it. You may get it and wind up getting the flu that's happened to me, but end up with a milder version of the infection anyway. So it's not to sniff at the, oh, the new Johnson & Johnson vaccine is only 57% efficacious in clinical trials in South Africa. But it's to say, look at the difference in efficacy, 57% in South Africa, but 72% efficacious in the U.S. And we know that that's because in the South African clinical trial, 97% of people who became infected and got sick with COVID-19 were infected with that newer South African variant of the virus. The kind of good news here, and of course we'll be seeing more of this as we are challenged with the new variants, is that mRNA vaccines, like the Pfizer-BioNTech and Moderna ones, you can be really nimble and flexible with switching them up a little bit. So early last year, I interviewed some officials at Moderna, and they said to me, look, the Chinese scientists gave us the genetic sequence of the coronavirus first week of January, three days later we had come up with a vaccine because Mm -hmm. that's how quick you can be with mrna technology so the bulk of 2020 wasn't actually developing those vaccines it was really testing them and figuring out how to ramp up um, the supply chain and so i think that gives me a little bit of like oh i think we're going to see more and more variants but if we're going to use mrna technology maybe we can be as almost as quick as the virus in developing newer vaccines that work against them
3: We're talking with Dr. Seema Yasmin, an epidemiologist and clinical assistant professor of medicine at Stanford University. She's a former officer in the Epidemic Intelligence Service at the CDC and also an Emmy Award winning journalist and author. And you can join the conversation with your questions for Dr. Yasmin by calling 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Well, it'll be some time before the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is, is authorized and it can be then rolled out for distribution uh, in addition to that, it's we've had a relatively slow and chaotic distribution period. So there are things that we should be doing now, right, to avoid the new coronavirus variant. I just want to ask you about a lot of articles I'm seeing popping up suggesting that we should be double masking, you know, adhering much, much better to the kinds of safety protocols that have been in place, maybe doubling down on those. Can you talk about what we can do
4: right now? Yes. So I think right now, many of us are beyond fed up, fatigued by COVID. People are even labeling it COVID resentment because it's just been going on for so long. The problem is that now in our fatigued state, we actually need to be even more careful. Yes, we've turned the corner, the number of cases and hospitalizations is starting to trend down, which thank goodness for that. But at the same time, like we've just talked about, we're in a race now between the vaccines and the viral variants. So you want to be even more careful now, perhaps even more careful than you've been in the entire past year, the past 12 months, to limit your exposures. And the frustrating thing here is that you know we are having this conversation in the United States, arguably one of the wealthiest countries in the world, we still have an N95 shortage. Yes. We still have an N95 respirator mask supply chain issue. Doctors, nurses, frontline workers are having to reuse them because ideally I would say you wear that and you have a constant supply of those, you're good as long as it fits you properly. In the absence of that, if we're still using homemade cloth masks or cloth masks that are quite thin... It does make sense then to double up, to try and limit the amount of germs that can get into your breathing space and that you can breathe out and send off to others. So limiting exposure, physical distancing, not traveling if you can help it and double masking could go a long way, I think, in preventing us from becoming infected at this crucial point when we're seeing more and more spinoffs, newer variants of the coronavirus.
3: The thing is, though, it's hard enough to get people to wear one mask in many parts of California. I mean, masking was politicized, especially in the previous administration. You're an expert on health communication. How do we change that?
4: It's incredibly difficult given how much damage has been done, because instead of masks being this, hey, here's a relatively cheap and easy thing that you could do to literally save a life today, right? Keeping your germs in and keeping other people's germs out it became, as you said, so heavily politicized and your decision to wear a mask became an act of bipartisanship almost. One of the things that I do at the Stanford Health Communication Initiative is track the misinformation and disinformation that's spreading about masks or about vaccines and other public health interventions. And it went from don't wear a mask because they're toxic and they'll poison you with carbon dioxide, which is all false, to messages online that were saying, Masks go against the idea of American freedom. If you wear a mask, you are anti-American. So that's what we're up against. And in a nutshell, because I could talk about this for hours, we need communication strategies that speak to specific communities and to speak to their specific anxieties, fears, concerns, legitimate distrust of medical establishments. I think absent that, and just with a one-size-fits-all public health message, it can be really difficult to have successful communication campaigns.
3: Well, we'll talk more about messaging and why it's so important, especially right now with these variants, with Dr. Seema Yasmin. After the break, I'm Mina Kim. You're listening to Forum.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.
3: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Dr. Seema Yasmin, epidemiologist and clinical assistant professor of medicine at Stanford University, a former officer in the Epidemic Intelligence Service at the CDC. She's also an Emmy Award-winning journalist and author of the book Viral BS, Medical Myths and Why We Fall for Them. What are your questions for Dr. Yasmin? Give us a call, 866-733-6786. Get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Email us, forum at kqed.org. And let me go to Eileen in Folsom. Hi, Eileen.
2: Hello. Good morning. Uh, thank you for taking my call. I am an RN, a nursing supervisor in a 350-bed hospital here in the area. We are kind of a regional COVID uh, hospital. Um, we have been managing these COVID patients for since it started. And I've noticed the management has changed. But more importantly, the patients come in um, And they get sick very quickly, and they're dying very quickly. And it was very unlike um, the initial pandemic and even the second surge. This group of patients seems to be younger. And um, like, for example, last night, we literally had four cardiac arrests in young patients who had just arrived in the hospital. Wow. And I wonder if you could speak to that.
4: Uh, Thank you,
3: Eileen. What do you think is driving this, Dr. Yasmin?
4: So firstly, thank you, Eileen, so much for the work that you're doing on the front lines and risking your own health and life to care for other Californians. This has been the topic of debate for a while now because I've heard it from other people um, as well as from Eileen right now there's been this question that is the newer B1426 California variant responsible for perhaps more severe infections, but also for an increasing number of large outbreaks in California towards the end of last year and a doubling in the California COVID death rate that we saw in like November and December when things got really bad. It goes back though to one of your earlier questions, Mina, in that we feel like it's too soon to say. And and even if you look at what happened in the UK initially when we first talked about that B117 variant, we said, well, it doesn't look like it kills people more, it doesn't look like it causes more severe infection, but it is more transmissible. Well, even that alone can result in perhaps more death and perhaps more severe disease. Because for example, if we're saying it's 70% more transmissible, then the R number goes from one to 1.7. So say one person may infect 10 people with the older version of the coronavirus. Now they're infecting 17. And those 17 are infecting 17 more and then another seven. So you see how these outbreaks can quickly become a lot bigger when you have a more transmissible version of the coronavirus. And among those much bigger outbreaks, you're going to see people who get a much more severe version of the disease and perhaps also are more likely to die. Now, of course, I would say in the last four or five days, There's been mounting evidence that not only is that variant not just more contagious, but also does cause more severe disease, something intrinsic in the virus that makes it um, makes us more sick if we're infected. But with the California variant, it could be implicated in the more severe cases that Eileen's talking about in the higher number of cases we saw late last year. But it's too soon to say
3: Well, given the things that you're talking about, I mean, we were hearing Dr. Anthony Fauci saying if ever there was a reason to vaccinate as many people as quickly as possible with the vaccine that we have right now, now is the time. But, you know, as as we were alluding to earlier with the vaccine rollout, I mean, there have been a lot of changes to the eligibility criteria recently, which gets into a whole bunch of things that I know you address, one of them being people feeling like the way California, Governor Newsom, state officials have been talking, they they feel somewhat misled, by the way, that mm-hmm. the state had been talking about how they were going to do the vaccine rollout initially with you know health workers, some seniors, some uh, essential workers and then moving on towards other essential workers and people with, uh, you know, compromised immune systems, disability, and so on. And now, as of last week, we're hearing, no, in fact, we're going to push that group down and move to a age-based eligibility system. I mean, can you talk a little bit about what the state needs to do here to try to get this vaccine rollout
4: back on track and in a way that feels equitable? Be clear and be transparent because right now there's an incredible amount of of confusion. I think it was January 13th that the governor said, Californians over the age of 65 are now eligible for vaccination. Well, then you need to make that policy, policy guidance actionable because you are suddenly saying that close to 6 million Californians are now eligible for the vaccine. What happened then was people over the age of 65 or their kids calling up county health department saying, how can my parent get the vaccine? The county saying call the state, the state saying call your health provider, the health provider saying call your insurance and the insurance saying no, call the county. So it was an absolute mess. And what we saw was public-sourced data uh, and websites created by members of the public to say, hey, let's between us band together. You call 10 clinics, I'll call 10 state or local entities to try and figure out what the heck is going on here. But it hasn't been transparent. And even as you say, we're told the the guidance will change. I think the wording was something like mostly age-based. So we're still not sure what's happening within that. We know that in the group 1A, there was your healthcare workers and your residents of long-term care facilities, and then it was frontline workers and people over the age of 65, but it's very unclear uh, who's gonna be in group 1C, for example, and of course, disability advocates and disabled people are saying, are you just gonna factor in age? Like, what does the mostly refer to? And if you're going for speed in terms of the vaccination program, are you going to prioritize speed at the expense of equity? Because that can't happen. That would be a disaster. That This pandemic has really, really hurt people on the margins of society, Black and Latinx people here in California, for example. I was reading a New York Times report this morning. If you're in Santa Monica, one in 24 Santa Monica residents has been infected, one in 22 in Pasadena. But that jumps up to one in five in some predominantly Latinx neighborhoods in San Fernando Valley, for example. So how does an age-based prioritization work in the context of a pandemic that isn't just disproportionately hurting older people, that is disproportionately hurting people uh, who are people of color, who are indigenous. And for example, here in California, if you're incarcerated, your chances of getting COVID-19 are seven times higher than someone in California who's not incarcerated. Your chances of dying from COVID-19 in prison, in jail in California are double that. For those of us who are not incarcerated, we've heard precious little about how incarcerated people, not staff in prisons, but incarcerated people will be prioritized for a vaccine rollout. And that has to change.
3: So in addition to those questions and concerns, the other thing too is once you do realize that you are eligible, even getting that coveted appointment to get your vaccine is very difficult. Uh, We've been hearing about seniors who just don't have the technological savvy to be able to Go through clunky portals uh, to try to get their appointments going or, you know, the ability to even spend hours in line waiting to get your shot. Uh, that needs to change as well, just in terms of trying to get people through online systems set up.
4: Oh, ab- absolutely. And that Kafkaesque loop that I described to you earlier about someone calling the county, then the state and the state saying, no, that was actually my friend, Dr. Argovan Van Salis, who's a physician here. She was trying to navigate the system for her parents, and she's a surgeon. She is highly educated, and she was getting nowhere in figuring out how her parent, how her mother could get vaccinated. So that needs to change. I will say, though, this isn't just a California problem. Of course, we can talk about California-specific issues, but the U.S. nationally does not have a national Immunization recording system. We have a really good one for reporting any adverse events that could be linked to vaccines. But across the U.S., we have sixty-four different immunization registries. They don't all talk to each other. This is like a problem that's thirty or forty years old. And anyone listening who works in childhood immunizations will know that system is so patchy and broken. So here in California, it's been similar. We saw an open letter from states and local health officials. So the governor, I think it was last Monday, saying, "Can you?" fix the statewide system because we're getting kicked out of it as we try to put in data we're being made to re-enter data it's embarrassing that we are the home to silicon valley but our statewide reporting system for vaccines has been plagued with coding errors and data lags and all sorts Mm -hmm. of mistakes that has to get fixed otherwise equity suffers vaccine allocation and efficiency of vaccination suffers. And it just gets really hard on a logistical basis to say this county needs this much vaccine or this county needs this much. You can't do it if you're not properly collecting that data. And a few weeks ago, the governor said to us, he said to us Californians, hold me accountable. And he was saying that specifically in regard to his promise of vaccinating 1 million Californians in 10 days. I love the gesture. Of course, elected officials should be held accountable. We can't hold you accountable if we don't have the data. So we actually don't know. Did he meet that target in 10 days? Did he meet it in 12 or 15? Don't know. Haven't got the numbers. Don't have access to the data.
3: Let me go to caller Jill in Oakland. Hi, Jill.
2: Hi, thank you for having this super important discussion. I was just having a conversation with my partner yesterday about some of the confusion around how the vaccine works. Uh, He happens to be a pilot, considered an essential worker and will be vaccinated soon. And he's wondering, should I be receiving this vaccine over someone else? Because uh, our question was, can a person vaccinated still pass the virus to another person? When can you stop wearing your masks? Should you stop wearing your masks ever? And, uh, Uh, just generally around a misunderstanding about how the vaccine will work after you're vaccinated.
3: Jill, thanks. I mean, I think you really are hitting on the head a question that I have definitely seen now that you are starting to have more people vaccinated, and and that is what can you do safely uh, once you've been vaccinated?
4: Sure. So in California, about 6.9 percent of us have received at least the first dose. About one percent, one and a half percent have received both doses. Even for those of you who are the lucky one and a half percent who've gotten both doses, you still have to wear your mask and you still have to physically distance. And that's because in the clinical trials that tested these vaccines, we were testing them to see how well do they prevent you from becoming severely sick with COVID-19. That means we actually don't have any evidence to show that if you're vaccinated, you are less likely to transmit the infection to others. That's because you can get vaccinated with these vaccines and you might still get infected, But the vaccines are so efficacious, around 95% efficacious in when it comes to the mRNA vaccines at preventing you from getting sick, even if you get infected. However, there's still a chance that you could be protected against severe infection because you got the shots, but that you could pass the virus on to other people who are vulnerable, who could become very sick, who could even die. And so I think you know, sometimes I get asked this question, like, when can we go back to normal? And I think often that's like normal being, let's not have to wear masks. Let's be able to like go to football games and crowds together. It will take a while to get there because we'll need herd immunity. In the meantime, if you've had one shot or two shots even, you still have to wear the mask because you could still potentially transmit the virus to other people.
3: And we're still trying to figure out just what that risk is, right?
4: We are. And what happens is once you roll out a vaccine into the real world and you get all your like messy situations because the real world is not black and white like a clinical trial. I hope that we will start to gather that data that, fingers crossed, shows us that not only do these vaccines protect you against severe disease, but they lower your chances of spreading the virus to others. But we don't have that information yet.
3: Mary writes, my surgeon requires a COVID test six days prior to surgery. My vaccination is scheduled for one week before the required COVID test. Will the COVID-19 vaccine affect taking a test?
4: Potentially, well, it may not um, because it takes a while to get the antibodies once you've been vaccinated. It can take at least two weeks in some cases. I say possibly because it depends on what kind of COVID-19 test you're going for. If you're going for a PCR test, which I think is the best kind of test, then no, that getting the vaccine won't interfere with that. And you should definitely not delay getting vaccinated because you're going in for surgery. If you're eligible, you're being offered an appointment for the vaccine, please go ahead and get it.
3: Well, John writes, any published evidence yet on the efficacy of any of the COVID vaccines in the immunosuppressive, such as in solid organ transplant recipients?
4: There there is some data. I'm not totally familiar with it. So what I'll do is echo what Dr. Fauci has said, which I think is good advice, which is that In those people who are immunocompromised, oftentimes over the years, they'll have been told, don't get this vaccine, don't get such and such a vaccine because of the ways that those vaccines were made. So often for viral infections, a vaccine will contain some part of the virus, even some entire weakened dose of the virus with these mRNA vaccines, you're not being exposed to any virus at all. And that's why Dr. Fauci and others are saying, go ahead and get these mRNA vaccines, even if you've been, uh, even if you've received an organ transplant, even if you are immunosuppressed. The flip side to that is that the vaccine may not work. As well in you because your immune system may not build as good of a response as we'd like to the vaccination. But that's even more reason to get vaccinated because you would be one of those people that is most vulnerable and that we really worry about in terms of getting severe infection.
3: Again, we're talking with Dr. Seema Yasmin, epidemiologist and clinical assistant professor of medicine at Stanford, a former officer in the Epidemic Intelligence Service at the CDC. Her new book is Viral BS, Medical Myths and while and why we fall for them. You know, one of the things when I think about medical myths was there was a lot of anger at a protest over the weekend in Los Angeles, which shut down the Dodger Stadium vaccine site, one of the largest sites in the country. And while it was just for an hour, I think there was a lot of frustration that people's beliefs in these conspiracy theories about the vaccine and various other things were actually contributing to to. Delaying you know a very important uh medical procedure getting a vaccine for people who for whom it could be life saving, and I know in your book you talk about the experience of of you yourself growing up and believing pretty far out conspiracy theories, like for example, that yeah. the royal family may be <laughs> reptiles in human form, things like that i mean what what can that What did that teach you about the stickiness of this kind of information and what can be done to really try to, I don't know, you can't get rid of it, but
4: just keep it in check to the extent where it doesn't disrupt other people's lives. Right. So as a professional debunker and someone who directs a place here at Stanford where we study this, the spread of misinformation and disinformation on health, I thought I can't write a book about medical myths and health hoaxes and conspiracy theories without kind of confessing that I myself as a girl and even as a teenager believe in all sorts of ridiculous conspiracy theories what that has taught me, and of course, I don't believe in the mouth anyone listening and judging me, but what that taught me was how easy it is to sometimes fall into groupthink, but also how easy it is to believe things that seem absurd and are false when quite absurd, egregious, terrible, exploitative things that sound too weird to be true actually have happened. So really bad things have actually happened, really strange things that you wouldn't believe. Those things, having actually happened, can make it easier for us to just believe things that are absurd but really are false. And I go into more detail of this in that first chapter of the book and kind of explain how that is. How it translates into my work now, where I do a lot of work teaching physicians and nurses and healthcare workers how to have good conversations with people who come in and are like, I don't believe in masks or I don't believe in COVID even, is it has to start with empathy. And that's really hard. You're talking about people turning up without masks, basically blocking older, vulnerable Californians from getting an essential service. So I'm not saying necessarily have empathy with them in the context of that particular protest, But when we are sitting one-on-one and talking to people who hold these conspiracy theories, it can very easily become a polarized, extremely polarized conversation. And there's evidence that pouring facts onto a polarized conversation is like pouring kerosene onto a fire. That's counterintuitive to scientists and epidemiologists like me who love data because what the social scientists and the social psychologists tell us, hey, Providing more information is not the answer. It's more complicated than that. It's empathy, compassion, finding common ground with that person and really trying to understand how it is that they came to believe that. And unless you start to unravel some of that, you just won't be successful at undoing some of their beliefs in these deep-seated conspiracy theories.
3: More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the latest coronavirus news with Dr. Seema Yasmin. She's also the author of the book Viral BS, Medical Myths and Why We Fall for Them. She's an epidemiologist, clinical assistant professor of medicine at Stanford University, and a former officer in the Epidemic Intelligence Service at the CDC. And we were just talking before the break about how people really latch on to medical myths and and strategies for showing empathy and trying to address some of their concerns. Amy writes, how can we change the messaging to convince more of the public to wear a mask? Is there any discussion of a public information campaign that could approach the messaging in a refreshing way that really reaches people? Is there any way to track the patients being admitted to hospitals and if they were on anti masker or not?
4: I really liked some of the messaging that we saw earlier in the pandemic. And it's going to sound weird me saying that because Amy's asking about like refreshing. And so you might think of something, I don't know, newfangled or really innovative. But some of what I think worked really well was like officials, like prime ministers and premiers and places like Singapore and New Zealand, you know, we saw there really frank, honest, whether it was YouTube videos or Facebook lives, just speaking to people almost on a daily basis with updates. To me, that was refreshing, like making top leadership accessible and accountable and enhancing that transparency. I think it sounds simple, it often doesn't happen, but it goes such a long way to building trust because here's the thing, as we move through a pandemic caused by a novel virus, we're going to mess up. There are gonna be mistakes, there are gonna be oops, we should not have done it that way, we should have done it this way moments. Actually, research shows that each and any one of those incidents alone doesn't have to foment distrust in the government if you are holding yourself accountable and making yourself accessible. We actually saw this happen kind of good in a good way during the Ebola crisis a few years ago. At the time, the CDC director was Tom Frieden, and he had quite regular press conferences and he would say, we're sorry because we tried this thing out last week and it didn't go as planned. We're pivoting to this. So that's some of the the better Um, ways of communicating with the public that I've seen.
3: Well, this listener tweets, I'm a pregnant healthcare worker and nervous about getting the vaccine. Is there any further information on vaccine safety and efficacy in pregnancy? Also, since pregnant women are immunosuppressed, will the immune response be effective?
4: So this got even more complicated and confusing over the weekend and the latter part of last week for anyone who was staying up to this. What had happened was, unfortunately, and I think this was a big mistake, pregnant people were not included in many of the COVID-19 vaccine trials. I absolutely think that they should have been when you think about who's most at risk of getting severely sick. And many pregnant people want to be involved in clinical trials but were excluded. So then you end up with emergency use authorizations of these vaccines. And of course, the FDA and other scientists saying, Well, don't really have any evidence for how it's going to work in pregnant patients. So hey, over to you pregnant patients, you decide. They did say that there wasn't, there didn't seem to be any like biological logic for risk because of the way mRNA vaccines work. They didn't foresee it there being a problem in people who were pregnant and animal studies had shown them to be safe. So that was the first bit that was already a little confusing. Like, wait, are you including us in the EUA? You're kind of not mentioning as much, but you're not also excluding us explicitly. Then this weekend, the World Health Organization comes out and says, we don't advise pregnant women to get these vaccines. I was shocked by that. And then I was annoyed because about a day later, or maybe two days later, they reversed their decision and said, oh no, we're not saying that anymore. If you're pregnant, have a conversation with your doctor. Of course, I've talked to friends who are doctors and who are pregnant and have passed through the data themselves and decided, you know what? I'm gonna weigh the risks and benefits. And they feel that the risks of contracting COVID-19 while pregnant are so much worse than any potential risk associated with the vaccine, and they've gone towards getting vaccinated. But I think a lot of this could have been mitigated if we'd included pregnant patients in the trials, and I hope yes. we do in the future.
3: It's asking a lot of people to make decisions, very difficult decisions, right, yeah. that, that even professionals have a difficult time trying to, to recommend or not. Caroline and Alameda, what's your question? Good
1: morning. Um, frequently during this discussion, your guest has referenced a mRNA vaccine. But I'd like to have a better understanding of an mRNA mRNA vaccine versus a DNA vaccine, which I believe the Johnson & Johnson uh, vaccine is in the latter category.
4: Caroline, thanks. That's right. So we have also the AstraZeneca University of Oxford vaccine that's being used in the UK now, and the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which could be potentially up for emergency use authorization in a few weeks. Both of those are not mRNA vaccines. They do something that's more akin to older vaccine technology in that each of them, the AstraZeneca University of Oxford one and the Johnson and Johnson vaccines take a weakened version of another virus, an adenovirus that can't make us sick. And into that virus, they add a gene that makes the the spike protein of the coronavirus so that when you're injected with that, that virus that can't cause you harm acts as a vector. And that virus gets into your cells. It usually can't replicate itself, but your cells see that spike protein DNA from the coronavirus, use that to make the spike protein so that your body is, has then already been exposed. And should you come into contact with the real deal, the real virus, later on down the line, your immune system is like, aha, I have seen the spike protein before, I know what to recognize, and I already have an immune response ready. So that's the difference in terms of delivering the genetic code to our cells. On the one hand, you have the messenger RNA, but on the other hand, you have a piece of DNA that comes from the virus.
3: Speaking of mRNA, Joe writes, well, variant mRNA responses have a shorter development timeframe going forward. I mean, we've been hearing that Moderna and uh, Pfizer are trying to adjust their formulas even, maybe looking at booster shots, things like that. Will they have to go through the same sort of process for a vaccine uh, development, you know, in terms of all the clinical trials and other steps that are needed? Or, you know, could that development process be much shorter?
4: I think it could be a lot shorter because here's the thing. mRNA vaccines are new, but we've seen such success with the two mRNA vaccines we currently have And we've seen just how quickly you can pivot and you can introduce a small change in those mRNA sequences based on whichever variants are out there. I think that what could happen is we could see a system where a variant emerges, the companies like Moderna, Pfizer, BioNTech go back to the drawing board and say, right, here's the variant. What do we need to change in a vaccine? What could next year's potentially booster shot look like? That could be a scenario. Let's tweak it. And because we know so much about how the vaccine Vaccine works, And because we've gone through the rigors of phase one and phase two testing, maybe we need a phase three, maybe we need some kind of expedited system for a vaccine where a very small change has been made. And I wonder if that's our future. And I even wonder, actually, if our flu vaccines will change to becoming hmm. mRNA vaccines, because as you know, we have to get a different flu shot every year, because we're basing it on the strains that are circulating. I even wonder if there's a scenario where every year you go to get your flu shot, but actually it's your new COVID shot as well. That could be a possibility.
3: Let me go to Terry in Livermore. Hi, Terry.
4: Hello.
1: Thank you for taking my call. Um, Doctor, my son has um, had two uh, transplant surgeries for three organs. So he's very high need. He's 44 years old. And when he's uh, contacted his providers, they've all suggested that he talk to the next specialist and get on a list at the next facility. Um, his concern is that now with the governor's, uh, new schedule, he may actually be, uh, be on the list after the over 65s. Uh, his need is great. Do you have a suggestion of how we can navigate this and, and he can get on a list somewhere.
4: Terry, thanks. Mm-hmm. That That's my concern too, Terry, that with the little we've been told about the next stage of prioritization, it sounds like, and I quote, mostly aged-based prioritization, which makes me really worry about people like your son, who are not 65 and older, but are disproportionately at risk for COVID-19. Yes. I don't have a way of navigating that right now besides saying that we all need to put pressure on our officials and our lawmakers to say, yes, speed of the vaccine rollout is so important, but so is making sure that it's equitable. And so that we're not just factoring in one thing like age, like hello, we're in, I'm in Silicon Valley, we can develop algorithms that do more complex things than just factor in a person's age. It also needs to factor in things like race and ethnicity, which unfortunately impact outcomes. And it also needs to factor in the other chronic conditions that that person is living with. Right now, Terry, I don't, I wish I had a simple answer to you, for you to say, you call this number and your son can be prioritized. That's sadly not where we are right now. I don't, but I I really hope we end up with a system that does not just take into account people's age and really looks at the particular needs of people like your son who are high risk.
3: And yes. speaking of thank yes. you so much. Well, Terry, thank you for sharing that and, and best of luck. I mean speaking of vaccine eligibility, Patricia writes, in one county over sixty-five can get it. In another county next door, you have to be seventy-five. One right. health care provider is signing up over seventy-five, another over sixty-five. Why should someone get preferential treatment because of where they get their medical care? Should be universal throughout the state. I know the state yeah. is saying that they're in the process of revamping mm-hmm. to a statewide vaccine portal and that they It will basically, to some extent, help try to streamline and create kind of a uniform system, which right now, basically, 58 counties are running their own systems at this point. Do you see that
4: addressing Patricia's concern? It has the potential to. We see this announcement that Blue Shield of California is going to help with this centralized system. Right, as a third Uh, party. Right. And I, I worry that we don't even understand why they have been called in to do that. I, we do know that they contributed a million dollars to the governor's election campaign in 2018, but some transparency around that would be nice too, and transparency around what a centralized system will look like. I do think that in California, we are lucky to have a Surgeon General, Dr. Burke Harris, who understands these problems, who understands the issue of equity and not sacrificing equity for speed. I just hope her concern, and her expertise translate into a statewide centralized system that takes into account people like Terry Sun, to be honest, and takes into account the fact that, like I said earlier, one in 24 people in Santa Monica have been infected, but one in five in some predominantly Latinx San Fernando Valley uh, communities, that needs to get factored in too. So I see all of the potential, but I also am so frustrated that We knew our national and statewide immunization registration systems were broken. It's honestly, as a public health person who came to America 10 years ago to train in public health here, I will tell you this is old news. It's 35-year-old, 40-year-old news that these national and statewide systems were broken. Why are we having these conversations in 2021? Why weren't these conversations and these logistical challenges being mapped out early in 2020 while vaccine scientists were in the lab? Why weren't our elected officials at their computers figuring out algorithms and supply chains and systems that would make sure we'd have really quick and equitable rollout of vaccines the minute they were authorized by the FDA?
3: We're talking with Dr. Seema Yasmin, epidemiologist, Stanford professor and medical doctor. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Well, let me go to caller David in Martinez. Hi, David. Join us.
2: Yeah, my frustration is around uh, the vaccine production and the fact that taxpayers bore the risk of the research and development and the trials, and yet we're still allowing the drug companies to maintain their patent monopolies,
3: Well, let me see what Seema Yasmin has to say about that.
4: I think this, unfortunately, is another system that's broken, been known to be a broken system, even in so far as large pharmaceutical companies can elect as to how much risk they will take on and will completely abandon some disease areas, even where those diseases kill millions of people, but the drug companies don't see themselves returning a profit. So I completely agree we paid for Operation Warp Speed. That was our tens of billions of taxpayer dollars. And of course, the the vaccine should be available for free for everyone, Um, but we also need to see investment in academic centers that are developing vaccines who often rarely have the same kind of resources as drug companies and less ability to say, yes, we'll figure, we'll work on this disease area because we think it will make us money or not make us money. I hope that with the pandemic, one silver lining, if it's even appropriate to call it that, because this is a tragedy on such a mass scale, but I hope it really instigates us questioning some of these broken systems that we've just left in place because what we've inherited. We really need to change the way that we look at vaccine development and who gets the resources uh, to, to be able to develop vaccines. And yeah, that needs to change.
3: Let me go to caller Lewis in Richmond. Hi, Lewis.
2: Hi. Um, Thank you. Um, I had a run-in just before your break. Uh, I went in to get my mail at the post office in Richmond. And there was a fellow in there uh, who's already had an encounter with my office manager who refuses to wear a mask. Mm. And the postmistress uh, was just having an amicable conversation with him. And I asked her to ask him to leave. And she refused. And I asked him to leave. He said, no, I'm not going to. And I've had two friends die of COVID, and another one and his whole family get really sick. My son is immunosuppressed. It's very hard for me to not get immediately angry. Uh, I, I, I just, my business is incredibly impacted by COVID. Uh, It it is such a huge uh, problem to have the post office employee consistently speak directly with this gentleman and have no way to get this guy out of the post office short of throwing him out physically. And when I suggested I might do that, she pointed to the sign that said, you can't have an altercation with anybody in the post office instead of <laughs> asking them to leave. How do you deal with it?
4: Yeah, Lewis, I'm well, so also,
3: sorry that happened. Yeah,
4: Dr. Yeah, Yasmin. I, I would say, well, also, I wouldn't want you to get too close to that person in terms of having a physical altercation. And then you potentially be exposed and take the infection back to your family, right, where you have a loved one who is immunosuppressed. I think you have every right to be angry. It is maddening. Finally, we are seeing an administration that is rolling out federal mandates about mask wearing in some spaces, for example, mass transit. I don't know how that translates into places like the post office, I'll have to be honest, especially because... Um, The way that's managed varies from region to region, perhaps even one California county to another. But to anyone listening who ends up in that kind of situation, as maddening as it is, if at all it's possible, the best option is for you to extricate yourself from that situation. So, yes, I mean, the people who work there are in danger. There's no way around it for them, I don't think. But please don't get into physical altercations or even close proximity to people who are not wearing your mask. If possible, leave that area.
3: Well, Dr. Yasmin, we just have about 30 seconds left, but there is this one last uh, comment from a listener that just sort of says so much. This listener writes, once vaccinated, will grandparents be able to hug their grandchildren? And it just speaks a lot to what we've been going through for such an extended period of time. I don't know if you have a specific answer or just a comment on what that speaks to.
4: I think it speaks to our need as humans, as animals, to have proximity and to be able to hug our loved ones. And I think it speaks to the fact that this is one of the reasons why we're all so fatigued and fed up right now. We just want a really good hug. And there are people we haven't been able to hug for the best part of a year. I do have to say with my public health doctor hat on, please remember that just just because somebody's been vaccinated, even with the two shots, that could still mean that they're able to transmit the virus. So please don't go hugging people just yet unless they're in your pod. Otherwise, if you've been physically distancing from them already, just because they got the shot doesn't mean that you can give them a hug yet. I'm sorry. But I hope that by, you know, we'll quickly get 85 percent of us vaccinated and then we'll have safe herd immunity and then the hugging can commence.
3: (laughs) Well, Dr. Yasmin, thanks so much. I really appreciate having you on.
4: Thank
1: you.
3: Thanks for listening to Forum.
1: Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation.